Turning Tides is an Antics Entertainment affiliate. You can find us on social media at The Turning Tides Podcast on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, and at Turning Tides Pod on Twitter. For more information, or if you're interested in sponsoring the podcast, please contact us at The Turning Tides Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Warning, this episode of Turning Tides contains graphic descriptions of murder, racism, violence, adult themes, and suicide. Nothing so accurately illustrated what was to come during the 1980s in America than a massacre which capped off the 1970s. On November 3, 1979, Members of the Communist Workers' Party were holding a peaceful rally in Greensboro, North Carolina. They were there to support black organizers in their push for better treatment in North Carolina's abusive textile mill industry. In response, the Ku Klux Klan and members of the American Nazi Party promised to not allow the march. Police were conspicuously absent from the march's route. After a heckling match ensued between marchers and a van full of armed Nazis and Klansmen, the fascists opened fire. In the aftermath, five men and women lay dead, including a Cuban refugee who graduated magnum cum laude from Duke University, the recently elected local union president, and a nurse who was there to protest for better sanitation. Two all-white juries in two separate criminal cases sided with Nazis and Klansmen, who claimed self-defense. In spite of having two undercover informants among the fascist ranks and having ample information on the intention of violence, response by authorities was slow, and most arrested were communists, who just watched their friends die. In criminal court, there was no justice. For these families. In civil court, only two of the families were awarded money for wrongful death, and one surviving widow received money from the city for her loss. Greensboro City would delay and dither taking any responsibility for the role they played in the massacre. In 2009, they, quote, expressed regret for the death, unquote. In 2015, they placed the marker which was meant to memorialize the slain. It wasn't until 2017 when the Greensboro City Council finally, formally apologized. Throughout the country, the final embers of the New Deal were being stomped out. Ironically, this offensive was headed by a man who worshipped FDR and was even a former trade union head. Ronald Reagan was brought up in a Democratic household in Middle Illinois. Finding he was mediocre at sports, he discovered his true calling in sports commentating. Using this early job as a springboard into the arts, 
Ronald Reagan worked first in radio teleplays and then on the big screen in several Warner Brothers productions. His fledgling movie stardom was interrupted by World War II and his military service therein. Reagan would never be deployed abroad. Instead, he was chosen to be an Army Air Force public relations officer. Returning to his stagnant acting career, he was chosen as the Screen Actors Guild president for the first time in 1947. Leading the Guild through unprecedented times, the second Red Scare, Korea, and Taft-Hartley, Reagan kept SAG on the conservative government's good side. He actively cooperated with FBI agents as an undercover informant against his left-leaning colleagues. Reagan was selected once more to be the head of the union in 1959. During his second term, Reagan secured residual payments for film actors whose movies appeared on television after the theatrical releases. In 1960, he resigned from his position as president and turned his attention toward politics. He would become a national sensation because of his abilities as an orator. He quickly found himself as governor of California and several years later, president of the United States. Ronald Reagan holds a special distinction amongst American presidents. He is, to this day, the only president to destroy a labor union through his draconian policies. Other presidents have passively sided with big business, some have demanded arbitration, and a few demanded negotiations. The effects of his offensive against labor rights would set a precedent, which has only begun to wane in recent years. From his humble beginnings as a C-list actor, Reagan was always wary of leftist infiltration of labor unions. After World War II, he declared, quote, American movies occupied 70% of all the playing time of the world's movie screens. And, as was to become more and more apparent to me, Joseph Stalin has set out to make Hollywood an instrument of propaganda aimed at communizing the world, unquote. The shallow argument has been peddled since by countless conservative analysts. Reagan's brand of conservatism had been growing steadily amongst Republicans since the 1950s. These members of what Philip Dre calls the New Right Coalition found an early mouthpiece with Bob Taft, the co-author of the Taft-Hartley Bill. Following his death, the movement came under the sway of Barry Goldwater. The name of the game was anti-communism, isolationism, and a hands-off government. Goldwater would not survive to see this new right flourish into a national movement. It finally gained true power under Ronald Reagan. In 1962, JFK mandated federal employees be given the right to collectively bargain. When Nixon took over, he surprisingly continued the trend. 
1969, Nixon created what Philip Dre calls, quote, a means for binding arbitration in the face of labor stalemates involving postal employees, unquote. It was the final salvo of the New Deal before the retreat was officially sounded. The Civil Service Reform Act of 1978 banned all forms of striking by federal employees. Many federal unions balked. Could a union still have the right to collectively bargain if they had no right to strike? This legal stance became more problematic when one considers who is actually employed by the federal government. In many instances, the government hired through the private sector using contracted workers. This meant that, while one employee may have the right to strike, his colleague in the next cubicle wouldn't. The Professional Air Traffic Controllers Organization, or PATCO, was determined to challenge this ludicrous decree. Technically a federal union, PATCO members had no legal right to strike. This did not stop them from showing contempt for their workplace and employers in other ways. Within a year of its founding, the union had launched Operation Air Safety. This operation deliberately slowed down air traffic across the country, especially in the busiest airports, where they had been pushing it with the safety regulations prior. The next year, every union member mysteriously fell ill for the same three days. These tactics illustrated how poor the working relationship between air traffic controllers and their employers actually was. The union's main gripe was that the strain put on employees' physical and mental well-being was simply too great. Nearly 10% of retirees gave medical reasons for their premature departure. In an effort to compare and contrast the two, Senator Danny Fong said that a blackjack dealer in Vegas is relieved of his arduous mental duties every 45 minutes, whilst an air traffic controller had to stay on duty for up to four hours at a time. Imagine being a blackjack dealer who had to shuffle 52 cards, but each card was actually a several-ton airplane holding the souls of hundreds of occupants traveling through the sky at hundreds of miles an hour. Hypertension, stress, and anxiety were basic realities of work. Every day... Intense boredom collided with the highest stress events imaginable. There was no way to leave your work at the door. One controller claimed he would get home covered in sweat and drink for two hours before he could even find the energy to say hello to his wife. The members of PATCO argued that no other profession could handle the rigors or complexities of their work. Many PATCO members were trained in their field through the military, which explains the devotion to their work as well as the grievances about being treated unjustly. In spite of their obviously stressful jobs, the head of the FAA claimed being an air traffic controller was no more stressful than being a bus driver. When PATCO members insisted on a five-mile separation between aircraft in the air, 
Airlines cried foul. They said this was an intentional slowdown and that this quote-unquote sabotage was costing major airlines over $1 million a day in fuel. Permanent injunctions were sought against the union, which would bankrupt them if they attempted to strike, stop work, or intentionally slow down. In spite of these numerous injunctions, the federal government refused to fine the union when it attempted two separate work stoppages throughout the 1970s. By 1980, PATCO had won full benefits for those with 20 years on the job and those who were 50 years of age or more won the ability to retire early. In that same year, however, the genial president of PATCO was ousted by a youthful and aggressive opponent named Robert Poley. Poley promised energy and action if PATCO was not granted its several requests. The union believed, not without reason, that they had the president in their corner. PATCO was amongst one of the few unions to openly endorse and vote for Ronald Reagan. In October 1980, Reagan was even writing the union letters. In one letter, he said, quote, that too few people were working unreasonable hours with obsolete equipment which had placed the nation's air travelers in unwarranted danger, unquote. He further promised to, quote, take whatever steps necessary to provide our air traffic controllers with the most modern equipment and to adjust staff levels and work days so that they were commensurate with achieving a maximum degree of public safety, unquote. Unfortunately, the president's words and actions would not align in the slightest. Even as Reagan applauded Polish unionists as a part of the Solidarity Movement, he promised his handlers swift action in the face of a federal employee strike. In 1981, Reagan ordered his Secretary of Transportation to hire a known anti-union legal firm to knock out a deal with PATCO. On top of this, the new head of the FAA was a union buster. He went into negotiations not looking for a good deal for both sides, but for ways to undermine the union's position. In spite of anti-union forces coalescing against PATCO, they still fought for a better deal than that which was offered. The government deal included a $4,000 raise per annum for each air traffic controller, better equipment, extra raises for controllers who also operated as instructors and trainers, a raise for those who worked night shifts, as well as retraining programs for those experiencing work-related stressors. It was a decent offer and amounted to almost $40 million in improvements in wage raises. The main area in which the government's deal neglected to make any concessions was working hours. PATCO members voted 13,495 to 616 to reject the government's deal. The retraining and wage raises were all well and good, but until the government addressed the absurd work week, the PATCO union would not budge from their opposition. In response to his union's vote, Poli said, quote, the strike was called because of early burnout. 
because U.S. controllers work more hours than controllers in other free world countries, because wages do not keep up with inflation, and because management attitudes that ridicule our profession and turn deaf ears to our input into aviation safety. Unquote. The union prepared for a fight. The government warned that there would be no more concessions. The government doubled down on its pledge to not negotiate with PATCO if they decided to strike. The Attorney General, William French Smith, promised that members who struck would be prosecuted, quote, to the fullest extent of the law, unquote. At the same time, members of Congress signed pledges which accused PATCO of holding the government and its air-traveling citizens at the Union's mercy. Polly still believed... Reagan would step in to support the workers who had supported him. Instead, Reagan, doing his best Calvin Coolidge impression, said, quote, Damn it, the law is the law, and the law says they cannot strike. If they strike, they quit their jobs. Unquote. Come the morning of August 3rd, Reagan made good on his threat. He demanded PATCO members back to work within 48 hours. Never failing to mention he was head of a union, Reagan said, quote, I led the first strike ever called by that union, but we cannot compare labor management in the private sector with government. Government cannot close down assembly lines, unquote. The head of the FAA, Drew Lewis, agreed wholeheartedly, saying, quote, I don't care whether it's 9,000 or 12,000 or 100,000. Whoever is not at work will be fired, unquote. As this flurry of attacks were mounted, the Justice Department demanded over $4 million from PATCO for violating court injunctions. At the same time, they charged 72 PATCO local leaders with felonies. Instead of standing by the stressed-out and overworked controllers, the public and the media stuck by Ronald Reagan. The New York Times accused Patco of, quote, holding up the nation, unquote. Everyday Americans blamed the union for their strike. Anyone who's been held up at an airport for longer than necessary can understand the negative feelings that come up when that happens. But working people should not be expected to suffer every day, for the sake of others' convenience. The controller's strike was a last-ditch effort to gain recognition as human beings and not mere machines. Instead, the nature of the controller's work was used against them. Unlike postal workers, the controllers were an obscure small branch of the federal government's presence in daily American life. The postal worker was easily identifiable, and their daily toil was easily witnessed. Meanwhile, the lives of controllers remained hidden behind a pall, which would not be lifted any time soon. The entire country flooded to the president's side. Anti-union sentiment had been unearthed, and reactionaries and conservatives latched on to the fervent movement the National Association of Manufacturers began openly advocating for a, quote, union-free environment, unquote. This stance has insidiously crept its way into all levels of local, state, and federal government. My hometown, North Babylon, New York, 
unabashedly touts being a, quote, union-free school district, unquote, which explains the absolute lack of labor history throughout my time as a student in a New York State public school. The truly hypocritical aspect of the presidents, the media, and the public's view was that at the same time, for the same reasons, Lekwalesa was leading an unprecedented trade unionist movement in Poland, and America was in full support of it. The Solidarity Movement aimed to bring democracy and socialism to the broken Polish state. The Polish union leader, Hwelesa, understood that the only way to truly guarantee democracy was by first guaranteeing grassroots unions the right to organize and collectively bargain. The shambolic nature of the Soviet-Polish state, in many respects, mirrors aspects of the gig economy currently plaguing America, as well as many other nations. Basic necessities and goods were not distributed properly due to the ineptitude of Soviet state quote-unquote socialism. Millions of Polish people had no other choice but to deal and live within a shadow economy. So a quote private Poland or a quote-unquote gray market emerged in the 1980s as this economic crisis deepened. These black markets which dealt in basic necessities, could be found across the Soviet sphere of influence. A Soviet satellite leader used vast loans to fund uncompetitive industrial projects. When the time came to pay up, they pushed the costs of interest onto their citizens. In Poland, John Connolly contends, quote, sugar prices went up 100%, meat by two-thirds, and cheese and butter by about half. Unquote. In the face of the workers' growing anger, authorities responded with bullets, creating martyrs and continuing the death spiral of empire. Back in America, John Dunlop, former Secretary of Labor, was aptly saying that the Reagan administration, quote, has brought in no outside, dispassionate group to look at the problem. That ain't right. The administration has decided to leave no avenue of escape for the union. You just don't do that, unquote. The media latched on to the steep wage demands of the controllers, but they failed to mention Patco's numerous safety concerns. Still, Patco believed that their strike would paralyze the country's air transport system. They were not prepared for Reagan. In anticipation of a strike, Reagan colluded with the FAA to form a contingency plan. Through a method called flow control, the FAA claimed it would be able to reduce air traffic by 25%. Additionally, they grounded any and all non-essential and non-commercial aircrafts. 1,000 Patco strikers chose to heed Reagan's warning, and they returned to work. These former PATCO members would form the backbone of a newly staffed air traffic control industry. Alongside them, military controllers arrived to service the nation's airports. The call went out for federal scabs. 77,000 enthusiastically responded with applications. 
as PATCO suffered under a regime claiming to be hands-off, they were met by the cold shoulder from fellow unions inside the airline industry. The Airline Pilots Association, as well as the machinists and flight attendant unions, all refused to stand by PATCO. These union members crossed picket lines every day to report faithfully to work. They all felt slighted by PATCO. The pilots in particular felt that with the government now involved, their own work would be diminished. They were unfortunately proved right. Many redundant flights were removed altogether, and now only a few companies would be the sole arbiters of flights across America. Airlines like People's Express and New York Air were phased out. These same companies had been, quote-unquote, undermining large airlines with cheap flights. Regardless of PATCO's strategic decision to strike, if the Airline Pilots Association struck with controllers, they would have crippled the air transport industry, and the government would have been forced to concede or spend billions in bailouts. Across the board, the controllers were shunned. Even the AFL-CIO refused to endorse the picketers. Lamenting years later, a former controller said, quote, They made a mistake. And they're paying for it now. Labor made a mistake. Unquote. PATCO turned to the international labor movement for support. Several international controller unions showed their solidarity. In Canada and the Portuguese Azores, controllers staged work stoppages or refused to accept flights emanating from the United States for several days. However, when the International Federation of Air Traffic Controllers met in Amsterdam, they voted not to strike in solidarity. Philip Dre says, quote, Within days, flights were back to a 70% level. Unquote. This mass betrayal of PATCO and its workers by President Reagan was followed up with incredulity. Reagan now claimed the controllers, quote, had about 6,000 more employees than it really needed to operate safely. Unquote. Continuing his campaign of terror against the PATCO union, Willis Nordland says, quote, The Reagan administration took special actions to completely prevent fired controllers from having access to unemployment benefits, housing subsidies, and other federal benefit programs, unquote. Prior to Reagan, members of PATCO likened air traffic control to a, quote, working class dream. Unquote. This dream was now a nightmare, and the nightmare would not stop. Reagan turned his back on his hero FDR, bit his thumb at 80 years of labor rights, and poured salt in the wounds of 11,000 federal employees whom he left destitute. Reagan would hand the baton to private industry, which would begin to tear away at union rights like never before. Reagan resolutely pushed his conservative agenda. As PATCO lay gasping for breath, he pushed a revised budget through Congress. It cut all sorts of social programs, everything from lunches for poor children to disability benefits for the handicapped. One facet of the government, which remained fully funded and even saw its budget vastly increase, was military spending. In a now classic conservative move, the budget deficit grew immensely, 
due to large sums of money being poured into the military-industrial complex. Many members of the working class idolized Reagan then, and many still do now. Lane Kirkland, president of the AFL-CIO, explains this dichotomy well, saying, quote, He claims his victims as his allies and makes working people accomplices in his assault on their interests. Unquote. Wealth was beginning to shift in America. A once-flourishing middle class helped along by the New Deal was being slowly suffocated. Money now flowed up to the billionaire class in the form of vast tax cuts and government bailouts. It was only now that members of the media came out in support of the dead PATCO union. Reagan had already cashed in his chips on Labor Day as 100,000 AFL-CIO members marched through NYC Reagan was at Gracie Mansion, glad-handing with New York City's conservative mayor, Ed Koch, and handing the bedraggled mayor a federal check for the Westway Development Project. This project's goal was to convert the West Side Highway from a standard above-ground road into a tunnel which ran underground. This would leave the valuable skyline open, paving the way for the gentrification of the area. The proposed construction project ran into opposition immediately. Costs and infrastructure capacity played a role, but the largest problem lay with a landfill located under the West Side Highway. This landfill would have to be removed. It was proposed that the garbage be buried underground. This would have caused irrevocable damage to the soil and also to native salmon species, whose nesting beds are near the proposed garbage-dumping pit. Fortunately, the Westway project collapsed thanks to determined local New Yorker opposition. On September 19, 1981, a massive crowd of over 260,000 trade unionists descended peacefully on the capital. Solidarity Day was one of the largest mass gatherings of working people in American history. 200 separate labor organizations and their members were part of a motley crew of working people, determined to go down fighting even if their movement was destroyed in the process. The thought of such a challenge to federal authority was unthinkable only a few years before under George Meany but Kirkland was determined to reinvigorate the labor movement with a healthy dose of activism. Kirkland said, quote, Reagan has told us that he alone speaks for the working people of this country. But if you believe that governments are raised by the people, not as their enemies, but as their instruments, to promote the general welfare, look about you. You are not alone. You are the people that do the work of America, you run the factories and offices, work its farms, transport its produce, maintain its buildings, teach its children, nurse its sick, clean its streets, and fight in its defense. When something goes wrong in America, you feel it first, before the politicians or the more securely placed. Something has gone wrong, and you know it all too well." Unquote. 
It was a return to the rhetoric of an embattled labor movement, but the labor movement's goals remained general and vague. The AFL-CIO had what the New York Times described as a, quote, quixotic wish list, unquote. They demanded, quote, safety in the workplace, jobs and justice for all Americans, unquote. These demands, the article concludes, were, quote, voiced by a parade of assorted workers and unhappy liberals, unquote. It took 20 whole months for the air transportation system in America to return to its former production levels. During that time, the Reagan administration cost taxpayers at least $2 billion in training new controllers alone. Willis Nordland says, quote, After almost 10 years of turmoil, the expenditure of billions of dollars, the destruction of homes, families, and careers, little real improvement occurred, unquote. In 1988, 80 million flights were recorded in the United States, although there were more flights than ever during this year, thousands of controller positions still had not been filled, and there was no plan in place to do so. At around the same time, the FAA began arguing for a free flight model. This would essentially phase out many controllers, leaving a vast majority of the risk in the hands of air pilots. Reagan inflicted irrevocable damage upon the airline industry as well as the labor movement as a whole. A president had never so easily discharged and replaced federal employees like he did. It was unprecedented. He had played the public into believing strikebreakers and major companies were the real, true-blooded Americans. The battered American working class would receive no relief. One of the leading factors for the American economy's decline throughout the 1970s was globalization. Philip Dre defines globalization as, quote, the dispersal of the world's trade and finances through advances in shipping, air freight, telecommunications, and computerized banking and money exchanges, which allowed U.S. businesses access to lower-cost workers and production overseas, unquote. Globalization impacts each of us every single day, even without our conscious knowledge. If you don't believe me, look at the tag on your shirt. More than likely, aspects of your whole wardrobe, shoes and accessories included, were created by Asian peoples employed in sweatshops who received pennies on the dollar for their work from multi-billion dollar quote-unquote American companies. After the Soviet Union collapsed in 1989, this trend was exacerbated and it was pushed along still further by the rapid advancement of both China's and India's economies. Unions have been repeatedly on the back foot when it comes to tackling globalization. The true problem with globalization lies with billionaire companies being able to extort working peoples into poverty with government support. However, in many cases, blame is foisted onto the working person who lives paycheck to paycheck trying to provide for themselves and their families. To truly curtail the effects of globalization, the labor movement needs to reach across artificial boundaries like national borders and ethnicities. 
only by showing true international solidarity with working people everywhere can the negative effects of globalization be rescinded. Until that day comes, working people will be continually pitted against one another by manipulative politicians, the media, and the billionaire class who controls them both. The labor movement's political lifeline, the Democratic Party, was experiencing its own race to the right. Some remained faithful to the labor movement, but on the whole, Democrats in Congress tried to merely hold on to their positions in the face of a Republican resurgence. During the Carter years, Democrats routinely resisted many of Carter's proposed reforms. This further stymied the ineffectual president. This trend continued as America faced the next 12 years under conservative leadership. Philip Dre says, quote, Labor came to occupy a position in which it had almost none. It had linked its fate to the activism of a political party that was far from activist, unquote. As Joe Biden builds his border wall in Texas, while massive strikes are happening across countless industries, can any of us truly claim that times have changed all that much? Some scholars contend the labor movement in America should have stayed away from either political party and built a grassroots movement all their own, which could have potentially come out of the turmoil of the 1980s unscathed. Perhaps such a movement could have flowered into an American labor political party with serious traction in working-class neighborhoods across the country. In reality, there was nowhere for labor to go except into the waiting, reluctant arms of the Democrats. American politics are cut and dry. You win or you lose. A third party cannot seriously contend with the two major parties due to media bias pushing two candidates only. In a country like the United Kingdom and other parliamentary democracies, votes are counted proportionally, granting representation based on percentage of votes cast. In my opinion, this is a more efficient and representative system which takes the thoughts of all who live there into account. Back in the 1980s, management discovered new ways to rip workers off, using clever language like part-time and temporary. They realized they could pay someone less money for the same amount of work. On Wall Street, financiers and traders were discovering new, quote-unquote, ingenious ways to get rich quickly. Starting in the mid-1980s, Wall Street banking firms began to become publicly traded companies. This ballooned banking profits while shifting most of the risk onto the shareholder. Alongside this innovation, clever bankers came up with the subprime mortgage loan. This insidious Orwellian term is Wall Street's distinction for mortgage loans belonging to the working poor. This innovation opened a Pandora's box, and fraudulency was spilling out all over the place. Bankers discovered that by lying to poor people about interest rates for loans, they could make a killing. They would give the new homeowner an incredibly low interest rate for two years, 
but they regretted to inform them that after those two years were up, interest rates would skyrocket to unpayable levels. This forced the homeowner between a rock and a hard place. Either refinance and be open to the same scheme in another two years, or get your credit fucked and have your home foreclosed by the bank. If this sounds like a Ponzi scheme to you, you're absolutely right. It was. It made a few on the top exorbitantly rich, while everyone else, the taxpayers, had to foot the bill when it finally came due. In order to truly understand the greed and avarice which plagues America today, simply look to the 1980s and many of your questions will be answered. In spite of all this, some working people believed their rights still mattered. In several cases, strikers were met with varying reactions. Throughout the 1980s, professional athletes went on strike in the MLB and the NFL. These players were not compensated for TV and gate profits. The owners pocketed the money and shared it amongst themselves. I ask you, who the hell tunes in to a football game to watch zombie-ass Jerry Jones amble around in his private suite? Regardless, public opinion was against the players from the beginning. The MLB and the NFL employed a number of scabs to play full weeks in the regular season. Chicago Bears coach Mike Ditka was especially antagonistic toward the strikers. Although MLB and NFL players are prone to injury and experience life-threatening circumstances during games and practice, those who enjoy the entertainment they provide weekly for months on end love to cheer, quote, shut up and play, unquote, when those same people address their grievances through strikes or peaceful protests. Today, the average salary for an NFL player is $860,000 a year. Meanwhile, the richest owner in the NFL, Rob Walton, is worth over $50 billion. Hormel Foods, which is famous for its spam and other pork-based products, is located in the small Minnesota city of Austin. By the mid-1980s, Hormel employed over 1,600 men and women. In a very large way, Hormel was part of the Austin community, nourishing the livelihoods of a quarter of the entire town's population. As Hormel grew, its new professional cadre of leaders became out of touch with their employees, whom the company had once cherished. In 1985, they went so far as to seek concessions from local P9 of the United Food and Commercial Workers Union. They wanted to drop worker pay by over $2 an hour to meet economic realities. P9 was outraged at management's new demands. Hormel's profits had not ebbed. Why was a wage cut needed? P9 called in the muscle man of labor, Ray Rogers. Rogers took a radical approach to labor organizing. He termed his method the corporate campaign. To meet the modern world, he claimed, a new strategy was necessary. He would dive deep into corporate accounts and attempt to expose the business to any and all humiliating or unsavory details he could find. 
He believed by turning public opinion against Hormel, the company would be forced to quickly capitulate rather than face a media firestorm. Rogers had initially been involved in the cleanup of the United Mine Workers, following the triple assassination, which claimed the lives of reformist leader Jock Yablonsky and his wife and daughter. Following this, he supported North Carolina textile workers in their battle against J.P. Stevens & Co. P9's decision was considered inflammatory by townspeople and local media, but they felt it was the correct choice to quickly end the negotiations in the union's favor. Very quickly, the small town of Austin was home to mixed loyalties. Many supported the company which had employed them. Others supported the union which represented them. The divide separated households and families. The battle between the food giant and the small local, however, made for compelling evening news. People at home across the nation were solidly on the side of the union for the first time in many years. Their international union, the UFCW, stepped in and asked that local P9 accept the compromise deal Hormel had just offered. The local would accept no compromise. They voted by a small margin to continue their strike. Hormel had become fed up. They called for the plant to be reopened with replacement workers who were paid $8 an hour, and any striker who returned to work would be given $10 an hour. 2,000 applications rolled in. It did not matter that you were taking your neighbor's job. This was the new normal Reagan had established. Strikers were enraged. They jumped in their cars to block the entrances to the Hormel plant. P9 began a veritable tent city on their former job site. The local was buoyed by national support, but constant derision from friends and family alike made many union members capitulate. P9 desperately sought support from the House of Labor, the AFL-CIO. They were greeted coldly by union leadership. If P9 was to win, they would have to do it on their own. The authorities dug in their heels. They called Rogers, quote, the Ayatollah of Austin, unquote. In the end, the UFCW placed P9 into receivership and ceased their payments to strikers in Austin. The 900 strikers who had struggled for months against the corporate colossus were left unemployed, their previous positions filled by their friends and family. In Peoria, Illinois, Caterpillar Incorporated was the world's largest manufacturer of construction equipment. After decades of steady growth, the 1980s were harsh for Caterpillar. As the 1990s loomed, Caterpillar was forced to seriously downsize its workforce. 8,000 people were laid off, while Caterpillar found itself in a losing fight with Komatsu LTD, a Japanese competitor. Don Feitz was brought in as new CEO of Caterpillar. He was a veteran salesman who had honed his skills selling merchandise in Japan. Caterpillar's management felt his global expertise would help the company remain competitive in global markets. One thing Fights admired about Japanese businesses was their ability to squash labor dissent. He wished to employ a similar strategy with Caterpillar's UAW-represented employees. 
Philip Dre says the company had, quote, proposed to cease paying guards and janitors the $17 an hour wage it paid more skilled workers. It also sought a lower pay tier of $8.50 an hour for new hires. The contract offer held no pay increase to unskilled workers and failed to renew a guarantee the company had with the UAW to keep a minimum number of workers on salary, unquote. The company's proposition of this outrageous contract was a departure from a time-honored, preferred method of negotiating labor contracts called pattern bargaining. This form of bargaining is relatively straightforward. The union would seek to emulate a similar contract in a similar field, thus ensuring equity amongst negotiations and union members. The UAW wished to maintain this bargaining standard as the union's talk with the big three automakers was fast approaching. Some UAW members walked off at several facilities, while the company locked out many more. In April 1992, the company demanded the striking workers back to their posts within a week or they would lose their jobs. As the strike proceeded, 40,000 applications arrived from across the country. The workers quickly submitted to employer demands and returned to their work. Many of them were in their 40s. They wouldn't be able to work another 30 years to make a pension. UAW President Owen Biber was outraged by Caterpillar's arm twisting. He said, quote, Simply put, Caterpillar's anti-worker, anti-union takeaway strategy is a crime of domestic opportunity, unquote. The same year in which union rights were squashed at Caterpillar, 200 companies formed the Alliance to Keep Americans Working. This group worked for years to defeat the Cesar Chavez Workplace Fairness Bill. Through their corporate lobbying efforts, the bill has failed to make it through Congress multiple times. The labor champion had recently passed away. The bill, named in his honor, would have made the hiring of replacement workers illegal in a lockout or strike. Back at Caterpillar, the supposedly cowed UAW workers began a guerrilla campaign against their company. The company responded by firing the most vocal and cracking down on, quote, workplace etiquette, unquote. For a year, tension simmered, up until they finally exploded in 1993 with a three-day walkout. The next year, the strike was renewed. The UAW was ready this time. They had amassed a massive strike fund for this long-awaited day. The cat, however, was ready as well. They hired replacements immediately, who eagerly crossed picket lines every day to work. A lingering work action continued with plenty of zeal, but little support for over 18 months. Ultimately, the UAW had no choice but to admit defeat against the corporatist onslaught. With the election of Bill Clinton, the first Democrat in decades, labor had a supposed ally in the White House once more. In 1995, he issued an executive order which forbade the hiring of replacement workers when it pertained to federally contracted jobs. At the same time, he was instrumental in the approval of the North American Free Trade Association, which many argue has severely depreciated American wages. With each step the labor movement took forward, it took several steps back. 
In this sad push and pull, the few victories are worth studying. One such victory was the 1997 Teamster strike at the United Parcel Service, or UPS. The UPS exploited contingent and two-tier employment to the nines. It relied largely on these part-time and temporary workers to complete the same work as full-time employees. Additionally, the UPS was trying to gain more control over the structure of their workers' pension plans. The Teamsters would not stand for this. The idea of striking at this point was a truly risky venture. Work actions in America had fallen 90% since the 1970s. During that same time, real wages cascaded to the tune of 15%. In spite of the UPS generating a billion dollars of income every year, 80% of the company's new hires were part-time employees who enjoyed almost no benefits and a meager $9 an hour. Comparatively, a full-time employee could clear $20 an hour and enjoyed full benefits. UPS claimed these damning numbers were necessary to remain competitive with the mostly non-union Federal Express. Bob Herbert complained these shady business practices were, quote, called smart management in the corporate suite. In other places, it is called ripping people off, unquote. UPS began the negotiations by offering only 800 employees the opportunity to transition to full-time roles over the course of four years. The Teamsters shot back that 10,000 workers was the only acceptable number for that same amount of time. On August 4, 1997, the Teamsters struck. Airplane pilots who flew for UPS were on their side. Nearly 200,000 people walked off their jobs together. The UPS countered with erroneous claims of union-wide corruption. As this strike began, Teamster President Ron Carey was being accused of misappropriating union funds for his own gain in his union presidential campaign against James Hoffa Jr., son of the famous Jimmy Hoffa. Although UPS attempted to manipulate the public's opinion of the union, Americans showed intense support for the striking workers. Major unions were on the Teamsters' side as well. They viewed UPS jobs as a cornerstone of the new union service industry. The AFL-CIO was under the leadership of a new president as well, John Sweeney. His fiery rhetoric and every-man nature was a clear departure from the former conservative era of America's largest labor union. The 1997 UPS strike was innovative in another major way. Teamsters reached out to their international comrades in Europe. On what was called UPS World Action Day, European labor unions staged a solidarity work stoppage across the continent. UPS was shitting its pants. Similar entities could not fill the void UPS left because they did not have the infrastructure nor employees to do so. UPS was hemorrhaging money. In just 15 days, the company utterly capitulated. They agreed to shift 10,000 part-time employees into full-time status, while also granting wage hikes to part-time and full-time workers. 
Like a boxer finding their second win, the labor union scored a decisive victory, the reverberations of which are still being felt today. As these cards fell into place, the federal government was in the process of attempting to destroy organized labor racketeering throughout the country. The fact they chose to go after corrupt unions instead of corrupt Wall Street executives speaks volumes on the Congress people who facilitated these investigations. Regardless, several people in Congress believed in the battle against labor racketeering as a way to build a better and stronger labor movement. Their efforts are commendable. Their main focus was New York City, which had the highest number of union members and therefore the most labor racketeering anywhere in the country. The Gambino crime family, for example, controlled the garment district of New York City through the Master Truckmen of America, and this allowed them to operate a massive trucking cartel. The Genovese crime family, meanwhile, controlled the Fulton Fish Market, which is the largest wholesale fish market in the United States. They did this by exerting intense influence over the United Seafood Workers, Smoked Fish, and Cannery Union. Through their profit-gouging of fishing companies, they collected over $600,000 in protection money over a period of several years. The Lucese were busy with their air cargo scams at JFK Airport. Lucese goons hijacked, robbed, and threatened many truckers. In the most famous instance, thieves stole $6 million from a Lufthansa Airlines cargo hangar. And this robbery later went on to inspire the movie Goodfellas. In 1986, a world-class convention center, named after Jacob K. Javits, opened on Manhattan's west side. Almost immediately, mobsters from across the five families dipped their metaphorical fingers into the Javits Center pie. The Genovese, Colombo, and Gambino families worked alongside one another in order to make lucrative profits through labor racketeering. They did this through the control of the Teamsters Local 807, the Carpenters District Council, and the Expos Local 829. Additionally, they controlled the local waste management union, as well as the local construction union. It took years of rooting out labor racketeers for the Javits Center to rid itself of mafia influence. Prior to the opening of the Javits Center, Ronald Reagan created a President's Commission on Organized Crime. It would place 18 individuals in charge of exploring organized crime and its infiltration of American industry. The Bipartisan Commission released The Edge in 1986. It explored the role organized crime played in gambling, money laundering, and labor racketeering. In The Edge, the committee singled out three labor unions in particular for ridicule. The International Brotherhood of Teamsters, the Hotel and Restaurant Employees International Union, and the Laborers International Union of America. It charged the mafia with, quote, distorting the nation's economy and making a mockery of union member rights and collective bargaining, unquote.
Finding success with RICO litigation in the late 1970s, federal authorities turned to the tool repeatedly throughout the 1980s and 1990s. While many civil RICO cases have been won, they've done little to stem the tide against labor racketeers. Like the Persian immortal soldiers, if one fell, another took their place. Court-mandated trusteeships was a unique solution which was put forward by federal judges. In extreme circumstances, a federal judge may feel it necessary to appoint a person with expertise tackling organized crime to the role of union trustee. Their job was to ensure mafioso were driven from the union while also ensuring democracy within the union. The trustee had no fixed date for their time in office, and some trusteeships have lasted years before achieving a satisfying result. Additionally, mobsters were able to turn regularly apathetic union members into pro-mob voters come union election time, thanks to the belief that the government was taking over their union. No one envied the man who played the role of trustee. In many cases, their duties were impossible to accomplish. However, in several instances, court-appointed union trustees have removed several high-ranking mobsters from their respective unions. In other cases, they managed to reclaim financial damages to union funds. The clearest example was the successful purging of IBT Local 560. Prior to the trusteeship, Anthony Tony Pro Provenzano, alongside his brothers, ran the local union like a fascist state. The quote-unquote good workers were rewarded. Those who questioned their lot were not given the same privileges. You were better off if your whole family did what they were told. In 1978, Tony Pro was indicted for murder one. 17 years after the fact, for the slaying of a union dissident named Anthony Costelito. Upon his indictment, he was awarded a lifetime pension from the union, while his daughter was named secretary-treasurer. Tony Pro would die in prison in 1988, but his influence inside IBT Local 560 never waned. The federal government sought further RICO charges against high-ranking union members. In 1983, following a several-month-long trial, Judge Harold Ackerman determined that as long as Local 560 remained a, quote, captive union, unquote, labor racketeering would continue unabated. He reasoned, quote, through the imposition of a trusteeship for a curative period, can the pattern of abuse be broken and future RICO violations prevented, unquote. The appointed trustee was Joel R. Jacobson, an organizer for the International Ladies' Garment Workers' Union and a lifelong labor activist. In one year as appointed trustee, Jacobson increased union membership and garnered wage increases which were above the national average. However, Jacobson had little experience tackling and defeating an ingrained culture of labor racketeering. Judge Ackerman had Jacobson replaced with a former federal prosecutor, Edwin Steer. 
Ackerman ordered Steer to, quote, create and foster conditions under which union democracy will be restored and racketeer influence will be eliminated, unquote. Upon taking over the corruption-ridden local, Steer noted the complacent nature of the union. Convicted murderer Tony Pro's portrait still decorated the wall at the union headquarters. James B. Jacobs says, quote, Steer sought to provide the membership effective representation. Next, he endeavored to expose past and present exploitation of the union and its pension and welfare fund, unquote. After two years of intensive management on the ground and behind the scenes, Steer believed he had done enough to cleanse the union of mafia influence, and so he scheduled an election. The mafioso in the locals' ranks would not back down. They had created a, quote, civil liberties organization, unquote, called the Teamsters for Liberty. This group's main mission was to, quote, prevent the government's takeover of our union, unquote. The sinister argument worked, as the mafioso-aligned candidate won by a two-to-one margin, Refusing to admit defeat, Steer went about disqualifying Michael Schiata, the president-elect, from his post. Refusing at first, the judge quickly changed his ruling as it became clear Schiata ruled the local union like a feudal lord. In early 1991, the government sought to permanently ban Schiata and his associates from the union's ranks. James B. Jacobs claims, quote, in 1994, for the first time in living memory, the executive board of IBT Local 560 was composed of a majority of officers independent of the mob, unquote. In 1998, Steer called another election to end the mob's influence in Local 560 once and for all. In the final tally, the reformist Peter Brown won with 55% of the total vote, and a new chapter characterized by tolerance and union democracy, began for IBT Local 560. The example of Local 560 is yet to be duplicated in a major way elsewhere. However, this decade-long effort proved a court-mandated trusteeship could be effective when given time and the ability to act. Overall, the federal government's offensive against labor racketeers seems to ebb and flow with each new president. This lack, of this lack of continuity undermines efforts to seriously root out the influence of the mafia in the labor movement. As the 2000s began, authorities shifted their focus in a large way from the mafia to terrorism. There is little question that the mafia is still involved with labor unions. To what level remains a mystery. Some people may say that even discussing labor racketeering is inherently anti-labor. James B. Jacobs makes the argument that someone is not anti-family if they study the causes of family violence. In the same way, I believe understanding labor racketeering is the first step to bringing an end to it. The most powerful tool against mafia infiltration is knowledge. They rely on the fact that some militant unionists will never find fault in their union, in the same way a politician or a cult leader relies on an obedient fan base. This ineffectual and wishy-washy stance against labor racketeering will continue because 
the politicians who are in charge of federal directives against racketeering are ineffectual and wishy-washy. Real change in labor unions and in America at large will have to come from the rank and file. Federal attempts at solving these problems have very clearly been ineffectual. I think it's also important to bear in mind that even with the millions the Mafia stole and purged from union coffers, it was a mere drop in the bucket of a Wall Street trading floor. It was here that the economy was truly being manipulated, where nonsense jargon was about to come face-to-face with reality. As Soviet power imploded from within throughout the 1980s, America did all it could to help the implosion along. The Soviet Union was waging a costly war in Afghanistan against the Mujahideen, a far-right Islamic group who were funded in part by American dollars. Their campaign against Soviet occupation drove the military powerhouse away, inflicting almost 100,000 casualties. In what was left of Afghanistan, Warring factions of the Mujahideen fought with the interim government, each other, and a new group called the Taliban. The Taliban is a puritanical sect of Islamic extremists. Their name means student in Arabic. Their main aim was to implement Sharia law throughout the country. Alongside the Taliban, a much more militant group of extremists calling themselves Al-Qaeda had the same goal but they believed in world revolution. Their leader, Osama bin Laden, blamed the West for numerous atrocities and distortions across the Muslim world. Following increased U.S. military presence in Saudi Arabia and the disastrous Battle of Mogadishu in Somalia, bin Laden authorized increasingly violent attacks against the United States. In 1998, Suicide bombers manning trucks armed with explosives detonated simultaneously in two East African cities. The bombing in Nairobi, Kenya, killed over 200 people and left another 4,000 people wounded. In Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, a bomb killed 11. In the wreckage of the 1998 embassy bombings, few Americans were among the dead. Most who died were African locals. In response to these bombings, Bill Clinton authorized cruise missile attacks against positions in Afghanistan. On October 12, 2000, the USS Cole was targeted by al-Qaeda. A Yemeni suicide bomber killed 17 U.S. servicemen as their missile cruiser refueled. The brazen attack inspired Osama bin Laden and his cohorts to plan their own attack on the United States. The original targets for the September 11th attack were supposed to be nuclear facilities along the East Coast. This plan was altered, and they were now set to attack three incredibly symbolic targets. The White House, the Pentagon, and the World Trade Center buildings. The first represented the American government, the second America's military, and the last American economic power. Hijacking four separate aircraft for their purposes... Suicide teams set out in the hope of making themselves martyrs to the Islamic faith. American Airlines Flight 111 was the first to take off. It was also the first to strike the northern side of the northmost World Trade Center tower. 
United Airlines Flight 175, was hijacked next and deliberately crashed into the Southern Tower about a half hour later. American Airlines Flight 77 was bound for Los Angeles. It was hijacked and turned about face. The plane then plunged directly into the Pentagon's west wall. United Airlines Flight 93 was the final plane to be hijacked that day, and because of that, it is the one that we know the most about. The heroics of the people aboard this plane defy all earthly logic. Learning of the suicide attacks moments before, pilots were prepared for a cockpit intrusion. They keyed their intercom to air traffic control, granting the ability for controllers to eavesdrop on the hijackers. Several times, the pilot in charge faced physical punishment from the hijackers after he purposefully disengaged autopilot, making navigation that much harder for the would-be martyrs. A woman is heard shouting, quote, I don't want to die, unquote, before being killed with a knife. Tom Burnett made several calls to his wife from the back of the plane. This is where he came to the realization that they would not be escaping with their lives. A vote was taken by the passengers to rush the cockpit rather than allow these zealots to complete their mission. The heroic passengers are heard in recordings which survived. Todd Beamer shouted, quote, Are you guys ready? Okay, let's roll, unquote. Using a food cart, the passengers broke into the cockpit killed a hijacker and struggled until the end to regain control of the plane, but it was intentionally plunged into a field in Pennsylvania. In total, the 9-11 terrorist attacks killed 2,977 people. George W. Bush, with Dick Cheney in tow, would not let a good crisis go to waste. They set about altering American life. The Patriot Act destroyed any illusion of the Fourth Amendment. Anti-Muslim hate crimes increased exponentially and America invaded Afghanistan following the Taliban's refusal to submit to American demands. Several years later, after erroneously claiming Saddam Hussein was involved in 9-11 and had weapons of mass destruction, America would invade Iraq. Osama bin Laden would go into hiding in the hills, using the poorest Pakistan-Afghanistan border to make quick escapes. Barack Obama promised that if elected, he would kill or capture bin Laden, regardless of what country he was residing in. At the time, Obama was derided by conservatives, but he made good on his promise as bin Laden was killed by American special forces in 2011. As defense contractors were profiting off disaster, Wall Street was capitalizing on ignorance. The creation of the mortgage bond market was a revelation to many brokers and money managers on Wall Street. They extended their grimy little hands directly into the pockets of the poorest Americans. Michael Lewis says, quote, A mortgage bond wasn't a single giant loan for an explicit fixed term. A mortgage bond was a claim on the cash flows from a pool of thousands of individual home loans, unquote. Typically, prior to the creation of this massive scam, homeowners would repay loans with a manageable interest rate or they could potentially refinance if rates got too high. Now, thanks to the Solomon Brothers, pools of home loans would be carved up and sold to companies who would then capitalize 
off of the interest collected from the loans. These pools of home loans were divided into subsections called tranches. Michael Lewis uses the example of a massive tower of debt. These tranches were assigned risk value, and those who bought the first level of tranches were in the riskiest position, the first floor. Because the first floor was in the most high-risk position, those who invested in the first floor were granted the first wave of prepayments on the loans. However, they also paid the highest interest rates because of their position. This went on and on until you reached the supposedly invulnerable top deck. This tranche was the quote-unquote least risky and was therefore granted the lowest interest rate. This was the definition of a Ponzi scheme. But it was viewed as a win-win in the 90s. The homeowner paid his debts quickly thanks to a vibrant and growing economy, and the banks and their shareholders made billions. Wall Street, however, became too greedy. Most mortgage loans up until this point had been backed by what were essentially government guarantees. Wall Street firms created a new type of loan for those who were the quote-unquote least solvent or least likely to pay the money back. They started giving out home mortgage loans in the form of bonds or IOUs, counting on the fact that the American housing market was going strong. They assumed these impoverished citizens would refinance their loan in two years when the interest rates skyrocket, or they would be kicked out and another sucker would be brought in to fill their place in the financial void. This revolving door left poor citizens broke or homeless, and it allowed Wall Street employees to make exorbitant amounts of money. The Solomon brothers had created an entirely new bond market. You could get a bond on anything you fucking wanted. Your bond would be traded to other companies, individuals, and hedge funds without your knowledge, depending on your means. This new quote-unquote subprime mortgage loan was created in the early 1990s. At the time, there were only a small fraction of the profits being made in other sectors of banking and financing. Things began to change rapidly, with Moody starting the trend. Moody's is a credit agency of much renown, which gives out credit ratings based on market trends. They began offering up the information they had on subprime mortgages. Michael Lewis says, quote, These companies disclose their ever-growing earnings, but not much else. One of the many items they failed to disclose was the delinquency rate of the home loans they were making, unquote. Wall Street assumed the loans they gave out to the working poor would simply be repaid or refinanced. This assumption was the equivalent of lighting the fuse on a stick of dynamite and hoping some moisture would put out the flame before it blows up because it rained at the same time on Tuesday last week. As more people looked into the numbers, they discovered shocking information. Mobile homes, unlike regular homes, were similar to cars. Their value dropped the second they were bought. 
people who occupied these mobile homes were subject to, quote, involuntary prepayment, unquote, which is Wall Street talk for repossession of assets. Involuntary prepayments were rising at a stunning rate. Wall Street math and jargon was deemed accessible to only a select few. In fact, it was designed that way. Much like the mafia, strange terms and innuendos pervade financial speak. You didn't kill someone. You painted that house. You didn't leave someone already on the margins destitute. You received an involuntary prepayment. In 1997, the Russian Federation defaulted on its debt. The early subprime market, built on falsehoods, collapsed when they were unable to acquire new credit. Alongside it, several hedge funds also collapsed. This fueled, amongst other things, the recessions that staggered the globe throughout the early 2000s. People were strapped for cash and new debts could have brought Americans over the edge. However, the housing market continued its steady boom. This was because of the second mortgage. Dangled like an olive branch in front of the faces of struggling homeowners, the second mortgage offered a 15-year fixed-rate loan. But, in reality, the contract and adjusted interest rate for the loan was designed for a 30-year period. The swindlers at Household Finance Corporation were getting away with fraud on a massive level. The same people at Household were eventually forced to pay $484 billion to homeowners in 12 states. The next year, however, the corporation sold itself to HSBC for almost $16 billion. By 2005, subprime mortgage lending was raking in over half a trillion dollars in a single year, and the standard practice of fixed-rate loans was essentially phased out in favor of floating-rate loans. These floating rates would be fixed for two years, but once those two years were up, the rates would skyrocket to intolerable numbers— forcing a second mortgage, refinancing, or default. The same strategy was used on millions of families. My own family was manipulated into such a contract for two years in which my mother paid 7% interest before it shot up to over 13% interest when the bubble finally burst. Instead of not giving loans to people who were clearly unable to pay them, they would make loans accessible to everybody, then sell them to the income departments of big Wall Street firms, who would turn these garbage loans into bonds and then sell those to investors who wore rose-colored glasses. Whole companies began to be founded by people whose sole job was to make terrible loans and then quickly get rid of them at a nice profit. Bear Stearns, Merrill Lynch, Goldman Sachs, and Morgan Stanley all vied for a cut of the action. These were the true crime families of New York City. People who wanted in on this Tower of Sand ranged the gambit from Japanese farmer unions to German industrialists to sleazy American businessmen. They never asked if someday the tower would collapse 
they were high on their own fraudulent behavior. It became so bad that beyond subprime, a new category was created, the quote, interest-only, negative amortizing, adjustable rate subprime mortgage, unquote. This gave the homeowner the option to pay nothing in interest and roll back the interest with the bank. At some point, these bills would come due, creating an impossible situation for the homeowner, but a new opportunity for the loan giver. Several prudent traders and hedge fund managers began to hatch a plan to quote-unquote short or bet against these dubious towers of sand. Several people came up with the idea of using credit default swaps, which were insurance policies taken out on the loans. You paid low interest and could possibly receive a huge payout if these towers one day collapsed. Under these types of deals, defaults needed to reach 7 to 8% in order for the insurance policyholder to see vast returns on investment. Big Wall Street firms did not see credit default swaps as a way to bet against mortgages. They saw them as a way to get even more rich. They used the same idea to create an entirely new market which traded in nothing save the value of the credit on home mortgage loans. Within months, this market was making tens of billions of dollars. Smaller banks like AIG and Deutsch specialized in the trading of subprime mortgages. In their eyes, the loans would never go bad because a U.S. housing market collapse was unprecedented. Mike Burry, a hedge fund manager, led the way on betting against the system. In a few months, he owned $750 million worth of credit default swaps against subprime loans. In 2005, the early warning signs were becoming clear. Credit card delinquencies were reaching an all-time high, yet somehow the housing market still boomed. Lower middle-class Americans were at the end of their rope. Instead of investigating the fraud in the housing market, the federal government sat back and did nothing. They were busy ineffectively shooting at hills in Afghanistan and coordinating the occupation of Iraq. As 2006 began, the profit shift from stock market trading to subprime mortgage trading was clear. The former was a highly regulated entity, making it harder to rip people off. The latter was free from almost any regulation by the federal government. The intricacies in the subprime market were touted as an advantage by Wall Street CEOs. Regulators could not possibly comprehend their nefarious dealings. In order to alleviate risk for these massive conglomerates like the Lehman Brothers, etc., both entities would assume each other's credit. This bound all of Wall Street in a loose confederation of enormous piles of debt. A domino could topple everything at any moment. Michael Lewis says, quote, Financial risk had been created out of thin air, and it begged to be either honestly accounted for or disguised, unquote. 
Big firms often stood in the middle of these swaps between investors and other large entities. AIG became a common name in these discussions. They swallowed a huge portion of the risk from these trades, but they saw it as immensely profitable. A final linchpin in this entire confusing story was the creation of the Collateralized Debt Obligation, or CDO, created by Goldman Sachs Bank. This was another profit-out-of-thin-air situation. CDOs were literally deemed, quote, synthetic subprime mortgages, unquote. Employees at Goldman Sachs took hundreds of the worst loans and simply repackaged them as an entirely new set of loans. Retooled to fit Goldman Sachs' purposes, the CDOs would end up in front of an overworked Moody's rating agent and, being unable to make heads or tails of what they were looking at, they rated many of these new loans AAA instead of giving them their original triple B rating. Michael Lewis says, quote, The CDO was in effect a money laundering service for the residents of a lower middle class America. For Wall Street, it was a machine that turned lead into gold, unquote. However, like in alchemy, equivalent exchange is necessary. The blowback from this fool's gold machine would come to have global ramifications. It made the free market inefficient, risky, and most importantly, not free. Loan givers went about the country offering home loans to anyone they could find. They succeeded in giving out over $50 billion in home loans to Americans who had no idea they had essentially just bankrupted themselves. With each bet against the financial market, made by people like Steve Eisman and Mike Burry, there was an opposing bet on the market. Money did not grow on trees, but it could be summoned whenever required by Wall Street. For these towers of debt to become worthless, default rates only needed to reach 7%. This would bankrupt anyone who invested in the riskiest tranches, and at 8%, the next level would fail, and so on. But if that were the case, it would lead to a catastrophe not witnessed by America since the Great Depression. AIG finally caught wise to the huge amount of risk on their shoulders. Most AIG traders simply assumed the risk was small. But when it was discovered that a huge amount of credit default swaps that AIG owned were actually 95% subprime mortgages, the institution rushed to stop buying into the terrible deals. Strangely, AIG did nothing to offset the $50 billion it still owned in the trades. AIG had stopped trading subprime, but the housing money machine continued to turn out billions. Big Wall Street firms had clearly found another buyer or buyers for their subprime nonsense. In May 2006, Standard & Poor, or S&P, one of the country's largest credit rating agencies, announced it would change its rules for how it graded new subprime mortgage loans. They said that the billions which already floated in the market would not be re-rated. A push to invest heavily in subprime was on before this new guideline system came into effect. 
Meanwhile, working Americans were witnessing their wages decrease to the point at which the national ratio of median home price to income had grown from 3 to 1 to 4 to 1. Even this did not tell the whole story. There were outliers which were affected in an even more significant way. The ratio was 10 to 1 in Los Angeles, and in Miami, it was 8.5 to 1. In the summer of 2006, the price of real estate across the country peaked and then began to steadily decline all year. The numbers get even more egregious when you take into account the amount of defaults per state. Default rates in Georgia were five times higher than in their neighboring Florida, but both states had the same unemployment rate. Indiana's default rate was around 25%, while California, the most expensive state in the nation, saw default rates that never topped 5%. The worst loans, the ones people like Iceman were attempting to bet against, were located in what Wall Street called sand states. California, Florida, Nevada, and Arizona. Wall Street loan sharks targeted Mexican migrants in these states, using their relatively high credit rating to make tranches of subprime loans look better to credit agencies. Mexican migrants had good credit on paper because they had no credit prior. It was a sick manipulation. One Mexican strawberry picker who made only $14,000 a year qualified for a home loan for a piece of property worth nearly $724,000. Some may argue that it was the strawberry picker's fault for agreeing to such a poor deal, but that does not take into account the manipulative tactics Wall Street traders and mortgage companies use to get people to sign away their lives. A Jamaican woman from Queens was suckered into buying six townhouses with her sister. They bought the first one looking for a place to live. When the two-year fixed interest rate expired, a glad-handing salesman came to them and told them that they could refinance and use the money to invest in a second property. As prices began to fall, the sisters would be left adrift. These were the same loans which were rated AAA by agencies who employed people who desperately wanted a job at Wall Street firms. Using FICO scores as their guide, their brief glances at subprime loans were highly skewed, and there was a great deal of information of which only the company had full knowledge. Additionally, FICO scores were incredibly simplistic and easily manipulated. Instead of studying each FICO score on a case-by-case basis, ratings agencies simply took the average score of the pool they were analyzing. One employee claimed she was not allowed to downgrade credit scores if she felt they were poor. When asked why two bonds that seem identical were given different ratings, she said, quote, I'm not the one who makes those decisions, unquote. By mid-2006, housing prices began to cascade. In November of the same year, the index of subprime mortgage bonds called the ABX cited its first interest rate drop. The riskiest tranches were already falling apart. The poorest of the poor were unable to make their home loan payments. Bond market terminology was designed to be confusing. Instead of expensive bonds, they were rich. 
The worst and most risky loans were not located on the ground floor, but rather the mezzanine. CDOs, which were composed of nothing save these mezzanine bonds, were not called a subprime-backed CDO, but a, quote, structured finance CDO, unquote. Charles Ledley said of the system, quote, there's a reason why it doesn't quite make sense to us. It's because it doesn't quite make sense, unquote. When asked for clarification, Ledley and his financial partners were handed a confusing list of acronyms, RMBS, HELs, HELOCs, ALTE, etc. This pulled the veil off a hidden market called Midprime. This market may have been even shadier than Subprime. ALTE customers are described by Michael Lewis as, quote, an alternative to the most creditworthy, unquote. In other words, these were the customers who loan sharks did not even bother harassing to get information from. Midprime was essentially subprime. The only difference was the name. With this in mind, Ledley and his partners set about making the longest shot bets they could. They would not bet that the triple B bottom floor tranches would collapse. It was obvious that they would. They bet that the AAA, quote-unquote, risk-free tranches on the balcony would give way too. They did this because they understood that the ratings agencies had assigned bogus ratings to subprime-backed CDOs. When the bottom floor gave way, the whole building would too. That was at least the idea. 7% was the magic number which would crash the whole housing market due to the fraudulent activity committed by America's greatest thieves. The wildest part of all this is that the thieves believed in their own rigged game. As 2007 began, defaults rose as housing prices fell. Yet by some strange arithmetic, mortgage bonds and the price for their insurance remained unchanged. Steve Eisman was quote-unquote short $10 billion in subprime bonds. Meanwhile, he was paying $100 million a year just to keep the bets alive. In many ways, people like Iceman, Burry, and Ledley can be seen as the reason the subprime market was still afloat. Their bets against the housing market paradoxically fueled the housing market. This fact is exemplified by Eisman's interaction with a CDO manager named Wing Chow. Chow's firm, Harding Advisory, made billions trading subprime loans. After AIG skedaddled from subprime trading, people like Chow filled the gap and helped to feed the beast, which fed Eisman and his cronies, which fed the beast in turn. In the words of Michael Lewis, quote, the bond market had created what amounted to a double agent, the CDO manager. To assure the big investors who had handed their billions to him that he had their best interests at heart, the CDO manager kept ownership of what was called the equity, or first loss piece, of the CDO. The piece that vanished first when the subprime loans that ultimately supplied the CDO with cash defaulted. Unquote. At one point, Chow turned to Iceman during the dinner and said, quote, I love guys like you who short my market. Without you, I don't have anything to buy. The more excited that you get that you're right, the more trades you'll do. 
The more trades you do, the more product for me. Unquote. As the bubble grew with more hot air from thousands of speculators, both major credit agencies stuck by their optimistic predictions. They claimed housing prices would rise once more and that defaults would not reach higher than 5%. Were the rating agencies implicit in this massive Ponzi scheme which enriched few and bankrupted many? Eisman's financial partner, Danny Moses, said of the question, quote, There were more morons than crooks, but the crooks were higher up, unquote. On January 31, 2007, the ABX plummeted a whole point. This sent shockwaves throughout the subprime market. One of the few banks still willing to trade subprime was Wachovia. Other big Wall Street firms acted like nothing had happened, and they continued trading subprime amongst themselves, but they stopped allowing the purchase of insurance against the loans they traded. Bonds began to fall rapidly, yet this did not stop Merrill Lynch and Citigroup from creating and selling $50 billion in new synthetic CDOs backed by these same bonds. Wall Street firms were propping up the prices on these CDOs in the hopes of dumping the expenses in a foreign investor's lap. On June 14, 2007, Bear Stearns Asset Management could not hide its mortal wounds anymore. It declared it had lost a massive amount of money on its subprime loans. The CDO firm would have to dump $3.8 billion in assets before closing. Bear Stearns was staring perdition in the face, just as HSBC announced it had also lost big on its subprime mortgage loans. The multi-trillion dollar U.S. bond market was collapsing. By Wall Street's strange alchemy, however, the subprime market had strengthened. Rating agencies refused to budge on re-rating the pitiful CDOs they had deemed AAA. Beyond simply deeming CDOs AAA, rating agencies gave higher ratings to loans with floating interest rates as opposed to fixed interest rates. They wrongfully assumed that a borrower would be able to pay twice the amount of interest after a two-year standing rate. In reality, a broken refrigerator or appendage virtually guaranteed default. Even more shocking... Subprime mortgages with floating interest rates rose in value over time rather than fall. This, in my opinion, suggests that the rating agencies were complicit in this fraudulent activity. The fact that they refused to change any of the ratings they had given during this time suggests it still further. Beyond this, both agencies had no contingency plan for what to do if, someday, housing prices fell across the nation. They assumed they wouldn't because they hadn't yet. Additionally, both rating agencies, Moody's and S&P, played a never-ending game of appeasement with Wall Street firms. If one agency was too harsh in its criticism of a loan, it would lose business to the other. The regulator found themselves beholden to the firm they served instead of the other way around. The subprime beast had turned the world upside down. It was created during a time in which Wall Street was facing an identity crisis. Classic Wall Street dealings in structural finance were being supplanted by deals made through the Internet. 
the subprime market had revitalized Wall Street investment banks. But by July of 2007, the bill for fraudulency was coming due. However, Merrill Lynch, alongside the Lehman Brothers, Bank of America, UBS, Citigroup, Morgan Stanley, and others, would not be footing the bill. During that same month, the defunct Bear Stearns Asset Management announced that it had not just lost money, all of their $1.6 billion in assets were now worthless. Still, the market was controlled by a few massive conglomerates who would say one thing and do the exact opposite. All the while, George W. Bush refused to do anything to help American citizens and was incredibly useless as a commander-in-chief. I think this era of Wall Street nonsense can be aptly summed up in the words of the former president. Quote, Fool me once, shame on... Shame on you. Fool me... Well, can't get fooled again. Unquote. In 2007, 2.2 million people lost their homes. One in five who had signed a mortgage loan in 2005 would find themselves defaulting in 2007. Seeing many subprime failures, Wall Street turned to mid-prime. Their Alte mortgages made over a trillion dollars in profit over four years. Comparatively, subprime made nearly $2 trillion within the same amount of time. Both were shifty and contained essentially the same amount of risk. The only clear delineation between subprime and Alt-A was the FICO score, but as we have seen, those scores were easily manipulated. It was not until June 2007 that reality finally caught up with Wall Street. Two separate Bear Stearns-owned hedge funds collapsed. At the same time, publicly traded subprime mortgage bonds fell by over 20%. While these loans collapsed, the market which issued them did not budge. Until it did. For the first time in years, the market was beginning to reflect reality. Not because the free market works, but because big Wall Street firms had finally caught and wise to their outrageous gambit and sought trades for their worthless home loans. The market had flipped suddenly from selling insurance against the home loans to buying up any insurance on home loans they could. The same firms which made billions creating and trading these worthless bonds were now attempting to make even more by buying insurance on the bonds they had essentially created out of thin air. By the end of the year, delinquencies in a single pool of home loans had shot up by 37%, four and a half times more than was needed to render the bottom floor of a debt pyramid completely worthless. The rate at which Wall Street firms saw the disaster coming varied. J.P. Morgan was first to untether itself from subprime in 2006. Goldman Sachs was soon to follow, not just untethering themselves from the sinking ship, but getting insurance on the vessel as it sank. Bear Stearns managed its assets so terribly that its line to the ship was cut by force. Morgan Stanley not only held on, but invested more in the ship as it sank. They would end up owing a number of people and firms $6 billion in total. In their subprime pools, Morgan Stanley witnessed up to 40% delinquencies. The person responsible for these disastrous trades was Howie Hubler, who was allowed to retire and take tens of millions with him in October of 2007. 
In total, he cost Morgan Stanley $9 billion. It remains the worst trade in Wall Street history. In second place are all the other ones. Before he left, Hubler managed to shift some costs from Morgan Stanley. He somehow got Japan's second largest bank and UBS to agree to buy over $2 billion in quote-unquote AAA CDOs. As the buyers stopped buying, the exorbitant amount of money which was owed by Wall Street firms was coming to light. The worst economic crisis since the Great Depression was about to take hold. It would leave millions unemployed and homeless, while thousands would kill themselves, and hundreds of thousands more would develop cancer and die due to financial stress. If the U.S. government had stepped in in late 2007, perhaps a true cataclysm could have been avoided. George Bush, however, was too busy rallying the country against gay marriage, which he deemed was quote-unquote unnatural. Ledley and his partners decided that now was the best time to get out. Their shorts had cost them about a million dollars to purchase originally, but they were now worth over $60 million. If they held out longer, they would have been worth over $205 million. They found eager buyers with UBS, Merrill Lynch, and Lehman Brothers who were all scrambling to bet against their own investments. As 2008 began, the International Monetary Fund assessed losses were over $1 trillion. All the profiteers would have nowhere to hide. Their double dealings were plain for all to see. It was not only financial institutions which were at risk during the 2008 financial crisis. The very idea of free market capitalism was in limbo. The entire system was floundering as it choked on the dust it had created. On March 14, 2008, the run on the banks began, triggered by the revelation of the overwhelming losses by Wall Street firms in subprime loan deals. That same day, Iceman was involved in a panel discussion where he asserted, quote, This time is different, unquote. At 9.41 a.m., Bear Stearns was at $53 a share. At 9.49, it was $47 a share. At 9.55, $43. At 10.03, the price had nearly halved to only $29 a share. By the start of that week, Bear Stearns was sold to Morgan Stanley for $2 a share. At the end of March, it was clear someone had lost $240 billion. But who? On September 18, 2008, Lehman Brothers filed for bankruptcy, while Merrill Lynch announced it had lost over $55 billion in shoddy deals and then promptly sold itself to Bank of America. That same week, the Federal Reserve Bank loaned $85 billion to AIG to cover the firm's financial losses. Upon hearing the news, Corporations across the globe began taking their money out of money market funds. This plunged the Dow Jones Industrial Average 449 points. At 10.30 a.m. on September 18th, stocks went into freefall. Creating something from nothing, Wall Street firms were responsible for this manufactured disaster. In early October of 2008, the federal government announced it would absorb any losses in the financial system and prevent any Wall Street firms from failing. Lawyers descended on Wall Street like a plague of locusts and went about sorting through the rubble of market capitalism. 
Investment bankers were vanishing from a market that once counted investment banking as one of its main assets. This was the final swan song of Reaganomics. Long after Reagan had passed, the seeds he had sown had bloomed into reprehensible fruit. Michael Lewis says, quote, There was an umbilical cord running from the exploded beast back to the financial 1980s, unquote. As the stock market collapsed, commodity prices on steel and oil skyrocketed. The shocks spanned continents. During the same time, the Indonesian stock market was falling precipitously, while in Greece the economic crisis devolved into revolutionary fervor in the streets as working Greek citizens rioted against their government. As Barack Obama took office, he signed into law the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, which allocated almost $800 million in federal funding into the pockets of everyday Americans. This Keynesian economic aid package offered services across the board, but most of its capital was invested in tax relief for everyday Americans. It's unclear how successful this bill was in reversing the crisis, but the fact that the crisis was officially over by the summer of 2009 speaks in some part to its efficacy. The fallout would continue in the banking sector. Several bankers would be arrested, but only one would face any jail time. Banks and Wall Street firms blamed the poor for accepting their fraudulent loans. They blamed schoolteachers and workers for being a part of unions, which increased wages and therefore increased employer expenses. And they blamed the government for being too involved. In many ways, we're still dealing with the fallout from 2008. In the Great Recession's wake, the economies of India and China have risen meteorically. In the United States, companies were considered too big to fail, and they would be bailed out by U.S. taxpayers, who were given no such bailout for losing their homes and livelihoods to a pack of bloodthirsty hyenas. They had not invested wisely. The government claimed they could not seriously be rewarded for their bad choices. Meanwhile, in a single bailout of Citigroup, the Fed gave the institution $306 billion which equated to nearly 2% of America's gross domestic product at the time. Explaining the difference between 2008 and other financial crises, Michael Lewis says, quote, In an old-fashioned panic, perception creates its own reality. On Wall Street in 2008, the reality finally overpowered the perception. The problem wasn't that Lehman Brothers had been allowed to fail. The problem was that Lehman Brothers had been allowed to succeed. Unquote. For Iceman, the government's claim that a bank was too big to fail, quote, was less a solution than a symptom of a still deeply dysfunctional financial system, unquote. If these banks failed when their equity was tied up within the whole system, it would cause American life as we know it to change drastically. When a similar cataclysmic economic collapse occurred in the 1920s and 1930s, Franklin Delano Roosevelt actively sought to, and did, change much of American life. When a similar catastrophe rocked America once more, all the Bush and Obama administrations could do was place a bandage over a deep wound that indeed needed surgery and perhaps amputation. In response to this corrupt system, a groundswell of average Americans who were fed up with the way things were and the way they were robbed took direct action. 
The Occupy movement began in September of 2011. It was a largely nonviolent campaign by poor people for poor rights. Across the country and the world at large, people demanded change. They were met with ridicule. Similar refrains echoed in the protesters' ears once more. Get a job. Communist. Libtard. Etc. Occupy was largely unsuccessful, but it spawned a new generation of activists in all ranks of society. In the next episode of Turning Tides, which is also the last episode of our first year, we'll bring you up to speed on the American labor movement in the present day. Once more, market capitalism was nearly laid low, not by financial markets collapsing, but by a disease. The coronavirus pandemic created something entirely new, but it was something we knew always existed, the quote-unquote essential worker. These essential workers were deemed the most necessary workers who'd be needed to keep the country afloat. It turns out, money is not made on Wall Street with shady dealings. It is derived from the labor of the people who truly keep the country running. This fact is still missed by millions. On a recent collaborative episode with another podcast... A host decried the fact in his hometown there was a carpenter who made $50 an hour for his union work. He considered such a wage, quote, unsustainable, unquote. I, for one, would be very interested in discovering the salary of the owner of that factory, and if that number is deemed sustainable. That same boss profits exponentially from a highly specialized form of work, from a highly specialized laborer who has been working and learning in his field his whole life. He did not insure the chairs he created with credit default swaps. He did not make a bunch of chairs which don't work and then attempt to sell them off as top-of-the-line products. He used his hands, his tools, and his training to create something tangible, not illusory. There are profitable ventures in life which are based on imaginary entities, like on Wall Street. And there are real objects which are created by real people that are deemed overpriced or not worthy of value because they can't beget you more money. I ask you all... In the above scenario, who is the person who is truly overpaid? Thank you so much again for listening, especially to the second half of this podcast. In fact, if you're still listening, you deserve a pat on the back. Finances are not my strong suit at all. I am atrocious at math, so research for this episode was grueling. I was helped along by the superb writing of Michael Lewis and a desire to truly understand what happened in 2008. During that time, I was a child who was attempting to come to grips with high school life. I distinctly remember my mother saying to my father, quote, are we going to lose the house? Unquote. And the feelings that question engendered in me. This was real life. It had nothing to do with the girls I was interested in, the homework I needed to finish, or the hormones I could not quite come to grips with. 
My family was saved in part by Barack Obama's administration and their policy enactments. Without their aid, the course of my life would have been radically different. For millions who ended up destitute and on the streets, it was nearly impossible to bounce back. They were the victims of a grand conspiracy designed in boardrooms by millionaires and billionaires to take advantage of the poorest among us. These same people still run America using their net worth and political connections. Whether we hold them to a higher standard or not is up to us. And whether or not these institutions should even exist is a question we should be asking ourselves. Thank you all again for listening. I'm your host, Joseph Pascone, and I will be changing the name of this podcast to Fannie Mae in the hopes of getting some restitution from the federal government. If you like what you heard today, you can support us by donating on PayPal at Turning Tides Podcast One. Thanks for the support and thank you for listening. If you like what you've heard, we'd really appreciate it if you take the time to rate and review Turning Tides on whatever platform you use to listen and share the show on social media. It really helps us to bring the show to more listeners. Thank you guys so much. Thank you to everyone for listening. We'd also like to say thank you to Movo Photo. We use their sound equipment for this podcast as well as all of our other projects at Antics Entertainment. They make great equipment at great prices and we really appreciate that they make content creating so accessible for indie creators like us. Check them out on social media at Movo Photo, M-O-V-O-P-H-O-T-O. Thank you again.